The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Hello. Hey, it's me. Okay, good. Now we're connected. I'm glad. <laughs> All this stuff is not easy for me. <laughs> you sound crisp and clear. Good. I'm glad. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the woman you hear is Natalie Goldberg. She was a guest on this show way back on episode number four. Here we are. We are at episode number five hundred forty-one. And joining us for a second time, the best-selling author Natalie Goldberg. She's written fifteen books, everything from memoirs, collections of essays, poetry, writing books, a novel. The recent book, which I'm holding in my hands right now, it's three simple lines: a writer's pilgrimage into the heart and homeland of haiku. And I want to read something from the back jacket here. I really like this. This is from. Bill Addison, yes, the food critic, he says Goldberg shows us how to pay great attention to what really matters. This book is the salve our chaotic world needs right now. So, Natalie Goldberg,、oh. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If I was on your fourth show and now it's in the five hundreds, when was that? Could you, like nineteen what? Do you know? That was in two thousand seventeen. Oh, so not so long ago. Not so long. So ago. probably. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so you've been doing a lot of these shows. <laughs> My goodness, you've been busy. <laughs> I have been busy, but it's great to talk to you. To this day, I still get emails from people who listened to our first broadcast that we did together. So. Oh, great. Great. Do you remember which book it was? I think it was either The Great Spring. That's it. Or let. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that book I wrote while I had cancer. Right. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, I love that book. Great. It was fun talking to I you love, about it <laughs> and reading. Yeah, and yeah, I remember that. I, I, your name was familiar, but you know, the world keeps moving on. <laughs> With all its craziness, <laughs> very true.、So、I'm happy to get to talk to you again. Likewise, you know, I really, really enjoyed this book.、Uh, it's, it's. There's something very, very serene about reading it. Ah,、uh, yeah. Well, it's about haiku, and but not people's idea of haiku, but the real Japanese haiku. And really, in the very beginning, in the first chapter, which is called "Nothing Less Than God," it says, "Haiku is a refuge 
when the world seems chaotic, <laughs> when you're lost, frightened, tangled, and nothing is clear. And I've often gone to haiku and read it because if you get a good translation, it stops the world. It gets you right into the moment and lets you let go of our own suffering for a moment and enter a bigger world. Hmm. Shall I read a few? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. Okay. Maybe I should tell people, I'll read this that I learned from Allen Ginsberg, okay? Great. In 1978, so 76, because it'll set you up, because people have this old idea of haiku as, you know, 575, and you did it in grammar school, and the public school teacher mostly wanted to make sure that you learned how to count syllables. <laughs> so I'll read you this. Allen Ginsberg, the poet, first introduced me to haiku. There are four great Japanese haiku writers, he declared, holding up a finger for each one as he named them in front of this class in summer 1976. We were at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Basho, Busan, Isa, and Shiki. No women, I thought. Okay, I'd take the boys on and learn what I could from them. Sure, there were some women hidden in history. He also told us, and this is what's important for people who are listening. He also told us that the formal five syllables, then seven, then five, often taught in Western schools, does not necessarily work in English. In Japanese, each syllable counts. They don't have the and that those articles of speech. So he encouraged us not to worry about the count if we write or translate haiku. Only make sure the three lines make the mind leap. The, okay, here we go. The only real measure of a haiku, Alan told us that one hot July afternoon is upon hearing one, your mind experiences a small sensation of space. He paused. I leaned in breathless, which is nothing less than God. So, <laughs> and I never, ever forgot that. And I would read haiku. You know, 1976 is a long time. And a lot of my students say to me, Natalie, why didn't you write this book earlier about haiku? But, you know, we all digest things, and things come when it's time. So would you like to hear a few? And so that the listener can practice their experience of space in their mind. How does that sound, Paul? I love it. Okay. And I also want to say to everyone, sometimes you sit there and hear a haiku and go, huh? And then, <laughs> ah. Your brain goes, huh? And then, ah. You take a little leap. So don't worry if you don't get it right away. Okay. All right. Ready? Peeling a pear, a trickle of sweet juice along the blade. That's shicky. I'll read it again. Peeling a pear, a trickle of sweet juice along the blade. Here's one by Esau. 
dear, dear, what a fat, happy face it has, <laughs> this peony. The piercing cold in our bedroom, stepping on my dead wife's comb, <laughs> Busan. The evening cool, knowing the bell is tolling our life away, Isa again. So I, in this book, I go to Japan and I visit these haiku masters' graves that mostly wrote in the 17th century. Particularly, people know probably Basho because we all read Journey to the Deep North where he put on a backpack and went with a friend and just walked for six months and kept a journal where he would journal and then write a haiku, journal and write a haiku. But I did when I was there, I found a woman haiku writer too and found that she was as serious and she had haiku disciples and everything as much as the men. So that was really great. I'll read you one more, I think, by Basho, because this is so great. When he was walking, he comes to Matsushima, and it's so beautiful. This is the haiku. Matsushima, ah, Matsushima, ah, ah, Matsushima. And my Zen teacher recited that. And all my, most of my life, I always thought it was a mountain. And when I went to Japan, following in Basho's steps, I found out it was an archipelago. You know, it was all these islands in the distance. And it was very beautiful. (laughs) And it turns out that he never wrote it down, that it was just passed on for a 100 years orally. Doesn't that make sense? Because yeah. he was in such awe of it. Matsushima, ah, Matsushima, ah, ah, Matsushima. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Do you want to hear a few women? Yeah. I mean, a, a, a mostly, not a few. I have a lot of women, but not in this book. In this book, it's mostly Chione. And Shiona, you'll hear, it's a very different angle. Till his hat fades into a butterfly, I yearned for him. Woman's desire, deeply rooted, the wild violets. And this one, okay, everybody get really still. I'm going to repeat it twice. And this She calls it, you know, in Zen, there's impermanence. Well, there's impermanence in the world, but Zen tells you about it. And really in Japan, that's why they love, for instance, the cherry blossoms, because it's so poignant, they're so gorgeous, and they only last a very short time. So, and that's often referred to, Chioni refers to it as sad beauty. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm, yeah. So here's a haiku. Here's a haiku of hers that after she had an awakening experience, when she realized something deeply, she wrote this haiku to express it. I'll read it twice. 
clear water, no front, no back. Clear water, no front, no back. Hmm. So, so Paul, do you want to ask me a question, <laughs> or what should we, how should we go? Well, first of all, thank you for, for for reading us all of these. It's the best way to to really get into what we're talking about. Hearing a lot of those, it reminded me of something someone said to me one time. They said, "Ah, is the aroma of art." I thought that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, there are haikus all over the place. <laughs> On the note of you were talking about Allen Ginsberg, and I'm hoping you can tell the listeners out there about this experience you had at the Naropa Institute. Oh, well, you know, Alan was interested in the boys in the class, and uh, it was the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, and it was in Boulder, and it's he started it with Anne, with him and Anne Waldman, the poet. He started that section of Naropa Institute, and I was a young hippie, and I saved up my money and drove. I was living in Taos, New Mexico. And I drove up in my Volkswagen bug and stayed at a friend's house. And for six weeks, I studied with him. I can't remember if it was every day. I think it might have been every day. And I rode my bike. A friend gave me a bicycle, and I rode my bike to school every day. And um, he was mostly interested in the boys. So I, I knew I wasn't going to get any attention from him, but he was a wonderful teacher. I mean, wonderful. I mean, look at what he said about haiku. I never forgot it. And in the class, I met my friend Barbara Schmitz, who was becoming a poet as I was becoming a writer. And Barbara Schmitz lived in Norfolk, Nebraska, and she's now a serious poet who's published many books of poetry. And I'm a serious writer. But um, she reminded me, after Bones came out in 1986, I ended up teaching with Alan and became a peer with him. In L.A., we taught 600 students together for two years in a row. And I remember I called Barbara Schmitz, and I was very excited, and I told her, and she said, don't you remember? You said, he doesn't recognize me now, but he will someday. And I said, I said that? And she said, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you don't know who, you know, sometimes like you read your journal and you realize you tapped into a much deeper, clear part of yourself than you're conscious of. But Alan was a wonderful teacher and very generous. And he really knew poetry inside out. I loved him. I really loved him. And actually, Paul, I finished this book, Three Simple Lines, A Writer's Pilgrimage into the Heart and Homeland of Haiku. And I really only mention Alan at the very beginning where I just read it to you. And then when I finished the book two months later, I thought, you know, I didn't write an epilogue. Maybe I'll write an epilogue. And it came to me, 
I wanted to write this epilogue, and I thought, Natalie, it has nothing to do with the book. It was about Alan dying. And I kept saying, no, that's stupid. It has nothing to do with the book. And I finally said, okay, just write it. Hmm. And I wrote it, and it did fit. It really fit with the book. And that only then did I realize the whole book was an homage to Allen Ginsberg. Interesting. He gave us the teaching. He gave us the teaching, and I followed through. Could could you feel that, Paul, when you read the book? I could I could imagine that, yes. Yeah. I was shocked. I didn't know it while I was writing the book. It was only afterwards. How or did this pilgrimage in any way change the way you look or think about haiku? Oh, that's a good question. I think it didn't change it as much as it just deepened it. You know, I would go to the grave of, you know, Busan and, and you know, it, it was, oh, Busan, you know, all these stories are in here. All these great haiku writers, the old ones in the 17th century, the stories about them. Busan was born soon after Basho died. And Busan, though, picked up sort of the, you know, the uh, banner and became a very serious haiku writer. And he wanted to go to the place where Basho had a hut. And when he went to that place, it was just a pile of dirt. So he called all his haiku disciples and friends, and they built up his hut again, Basho's hut. And they made a vow that every year they would meet there for a weekend and drink sake and write haiku. Oh, so I realized haiku was a communal act and you could write it together. And so when I found Busan's grave, he was buried right above Basho's hut. A little bit up, I had to climb a mountain, you know, a mountain. And there was a cemetery there. He wanted to be buried near Basho's hut. And and I realized that there were some, it seemed formal that there were some gravestones around his gravestone. And later I realized those were his haiku disciples. Hmm. So when he died, he when they died, they asked to be buried near him. I was deeply moved by all this. So not particularly haiku, but the world of haiku opened up for me. Or like Shiki. Shiki I knew nothing about, and he is really the reason we have haiku now. He died in 1902, and it's almost like he threw haiku into the 20th century. And he coughed his first blood when he was 13. He had TB and died in his early 30s and always knew that death was near. And yet he kept writing haiku and not only kept writing it, he wrote about it and he had a very large following in Japan. And the last five years of his life, he was in such pain that he was bedridden. But every morning he'd wake up, drag himself to the edge of the tatami and look out at his garden and wait to see haikus, wait to receive haikus. And write them down. So these stories are all in the book. 
I was just blown out by these stories of this great determination around haiku. People followed haiku as a way of practice, including Chioni, the woman haiku writer, and she had disciples. Something that I love and it is very evident, not only in your writing, but also just hearing you speak now, the strong respect you have for these writers, the reverence, you know, visiting the graves. It, I, it's something, it's inspiring. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because in my book, After the Great Spring, Let the Whole Thundering World Come Home, each chapter begins with me telling of me visiting a grave of a writer or a painter I love. And I've always done that. And I didn't, you know, and thanking them and leaving a stone and saying I was there. And I didn't realize that people think that's peculiar. But really, we all go and visit our grandparents' graves or our aunt or our parents and talk to them. So I don't know why, you know, I feel so close to writers and painters that why wouldn't I do that? It did feel a little odd with Japan because only because I didn't speak the same language and these were people from the 17th century. But it, it 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 was really great to do it. Well, what would maybe be one of your most precious memories from, I think you visited Japan four times? Yeah, let me think. Yes, four times. Yeah. Do you have a most precious memory? Oh, no one's ever asked me that. You know, the first time I went was in 1998, and I went, I was a very serious Zen student, and I went looking for, you know, 16th century Zen or 12th century Zen. And, you know, Japan is very modern now. So I didn't like Japan at all, and I didn't return until 2012. And then I went a bunch of times, three times almost in a row. And I'm trying to think, uh, well, I guess I write in there about I visited the art island, Naoshima, and it's just dedicated to art. And I think it was almost the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And I write about it in here. And, yeah, it was just beautiful. I thought, Japan is finally coming to me because, you know, I've studied Japanese Zen for so long and studied with a Japanese Zen master for 12 years. But sitting there in that beauty, I, a whole other level came to me. Hmm. Interesting. What would you say it is that haiku does for you that you love so much? that it brings me into the present moment and it gets me out of my own neuroses and my own thoughts and into a more present world Hmm. that's non-human sometimes. Even if someone is talking about something human in the haiku, it takes me out of myself. And I think it's particularly potent now with COVID 
with all the terrible suffering and, you know, what's going on with George Floyd and everything, there's just almost seems like there's no relief and people are having a really hard time. And I think haiku is an antidote. Even though it might talk about suffering, it's not our suffering. Hmm. And it's more objective suffering. It's not about you, so always human suffering. Here's one. This is Chioni. Sad, so sad to miss the plum flower before it fell. Sad, so sad to miss the plum flower before it fell. Hmm. So we, it takes us out of ourselves and right in the moment what's around us. Very true. So many times when I was when I was reading the book, I would I would think about how much I had taken for granted sometimes just something we think of sometimes as mundane or we just maybe wrongfully think of as mundane or just commonplace. Yes, exactly. And actually, if we open to that, it lands us in the present moment, and it also helps heal us or ground us. Here's one from Busan. River in winter. Who left behind on the bank a red turnip? (laughs) (laughs) So ordinary and odd. River in winter. Who left behind on the bank a red turnip? And, Paul, I'll recite for you. I know it by heart. It's in the book. But I read a a Busan haiku that really is why I returned to Japan. I wanted to thank Busan for this haiku. Ah, grief and sadness. The fishing line trembles in the autumn breeze. I'll say it again. Ah, grief and sadness. The fishing line trembles in the autumn breeze. So it does, you know, it it notices something like that. And of course, noticing that it opens the whole world of suffering without hitting it over the head. <laughs> I find myself almost instinctively, you know, the first time you you recite, I'm listening, and then the second time I find myself instinctively closing my eyes. Ah, that's a good idea. <laughs> What do you find the reaction from people is when you recite or when you read haiku? Well, you know what's interesting, Paul? The book came out about two months ago, and I've not been able to see anybody because it's either on Zoom or like I'm talking to you on the phone. I haven't seen anybody. So I I know that they're loving it. The book is selling really well. I know that they're loving it, but I haven't seen anyone to see their physical reaction, which is a very odd statement about now. 
here haiku is bringing you right into the present, but I'm in one present and you're over there in another present. <laughs> I think, or I'd like to get your thoughts really, do you think haiku is a particularly accessible form of poetry for people? Oh, that's a great question. It seems like it really is. And people just, I mean, are writing it. I didn't realize how much people write haiku in this country and all over the world, not just Japan. And probably every other week, there's some big haiku conference. In the U.S., I know, and people writing it, and there's journals online, and just, yes, it's very accessible, and I think people, you know, it's something that you could do quickly and grab and not have to spend a year, like this book took me three years to write, you know, because I went to Japan, I had to understand Japanese culture a bit, but this is in the moment, and people just seem to spring to it. And I remember years ago when I taught in the public schools, as a public school teacher, the kids just loved it, absolutely loved it. Sometimes I would introduce it and they'd say, okay, 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 let's do it. <laughs> so it's a very accessible, simple form. When you think about this book, Three Simple Lines, and you think about your collective body of work as a as a whole it, it occurs to me it all started with one work and now it's more than a dozen 15 how does that feel to know you've written so much oh <laughs> that's a really good question you know you're asking me questions no one has asked me it's kind of in awe I can, more than about the book, I can tell you the suffering I went through to get that book done. And I don't mean it in a negative way, but it's hard to write books. You know, I'm encouraging everybody and yay, writing. And it's true, writing is fantastic. But for me to keep writing books, it's sort of like, yay, I want to have a child. Or yay, I want to get married. And you do it. And then it's hard. No, it's really hard. It's good, but it's really hard. So anything you really take on becomes good, but hard. So I look back and I remember each one, what I did to get that book out. And I feel some awe, like, wow, Natalie, what was driving you? And, you know, because we have COVID right now, and so I've been going a lot of places and I'm home a lot, I have been questioning that. Not in a bad way, sort of in awe. What was it in you, Nat, that got you to write? Well, I know one thing. I teach a lot, and my feeling as a Zen person is that you walk your talk. So I felt that I, I, if I'm writing a book, if I'm physically in the act of writing, then I it's kosher that I teach. But if I'm not writing, then I'm not in touch with the act. And often my monkey mind or my critic or editor that stops me from writing, I'll turn it on my students. <laughs> but if I'm writing, 
I just feel endless compassion for all my students because I know how hard it is. <laughs> Definitely hard. Yeah. It was, uh, it was just a couple of days ago, and I was just uh, writing a review of, uh, of Willie Nelson's latest album. And oh. I just heard those voices that sometimes writers sometimes will admit to hearing the howling sound of doubt. <laughs> and yeah, I want to know from you, what do you do when you start hearing that, that voice? Well, I've trained myself. The voice is always there. I've just trained myself to understand that it's going to always be there and it's always trying to reduce me. And I don't pay attention to it. I've learned not to. I mean, that's what keeps us, you know, so we never write. So we never do anything. And so I've learned to stand up to it. And it tries different angles. And I keep standing up to it, I guess. And when I don't and really listen to it, I get nothing done. So it's part of, you know, understanding the human mind. And really, what are the materials we have as writers? Pen, paper, and the human mind. Where do ideas come from? Memories, thoughts. It's the human mind. So the better we know our material, the better we can work with it. <laughs> the first time that we spoke, there is something that you told me that I've never forgotten. And occasionally, not just with writing, but with anything, when I'm working on something that's mentally taxing or or it's just hard for me or it requires a lot of critical thinking you said in our first interview you said just go lay down <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I i'll be so caught up in this web of thinking and i remember that like well sometimes it's also okay like maybe you're just exhausted <laughs> it's so <laughs> It sounds like something I would say. I don't remember saying it, but it definitely sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> and I, I remember the other side of that also, which is, you know, keep the pen moving, keep the pen flowing, you know, or whatever your pen might be, uh, a keyboard if or uh, whatever. What do you find is the best way to keep the pen moving? When somebody has that reservation. Is keep the pen moving. Just get, you know, don't listen to the reservation and keep your hand moving. Cut through. You know, with three simple lines, I couldn't tell anyone the three years I worked on it, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know how it was all going to come together. And I had to just trust and keep doing it. I even moved to Brooklyn for a while because I felt so arrogant trying to write about some things in Japan when I hadn't been back to Brooklyn where I was born and everything for 40 years. So I actually went back to Brooklyn and stayed there and wrote some of the book in Brooklyn. So I didn't turn my back on where I came from. You know, sort of like, you know, people who romanticize, for instance, Native Americans and they're better and, you know, just follow them. You know, I needed to, you know, come from where I come from. Hmm. 
So, you know, it's a long journey to write. And am I answering your question? Mm -hmm. I can't remember anymore. But, (laughs) um, you know, it's so there are many different angles to it. But this book was hard and I kept going. And really, it was only the last maybe two months that I figured out how to bring it all together, to weave the chapter, sort of braid the chapters together. Because I tell the history of Shiki, I tell the history of Issa, you know, there's a lot in the book. Absolutely. And yet, it's three simple lines. (laughs) (laughs) What was the most surprising thing that you you learned or the most surprising revelation you had from writing this book? That ultimately it was an homage to Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. That was shocking to me. I mean, it was wonderful and it suddenly all made sense, but I didn't realize it throughout the whole working of the book. What is the number one thing that you found for you always inspires you, always makes you want to write? Keep your hand moving. (laughs) Just, you know, writing practice. Keep your hand moving. It's backed by 2,000 years of watching the mind. It's a practice for me. It's, you know, a Zen practice. It's not just some way to get famous or get known or to write a book. In the book, there's a question that was posed to you that, I I really liked it, and I liked your answer to it. And I wonder if you would answer this any differently now. And it was when you were asked, how did you become spontaneous? Oh, yeah. Uh, That was such an odd question. And I think I answered, did I answer, I'm Jewish? Did I say that? (laughs) You said by being Jewish, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... I mean, I, it, it made me a little self-conscious because I'm not aware of being more spontaneous than anybody else. But I think he meant in my writing. And I know about wild mind and trusting the mind and going where it goes. Hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us about this upcoming retreat you have in Wisconsin. There is somebody that I'm trying to convince to go. And uh, maybe you could do that. Well, yeah, the the retreat is, it's in Madeline Island in Lake Superior. And it's, I did it two or three years ago. And I'm doing it probably one more time. This is it in June. It's three weeks. The first week is for people who haven't studied with me before and who want to just practice we're going to be in silence. I think that'll be the best week. Then the ne- second week is memoir. And you can't take the memoir. If you've never studied with me before, you can't take the memoir without taking the first week. So, yeah, just contact them. It's beautiful up there. It's in Lake Superior. And Madeline Island is sacred to the Ashinaabe Indians. And actually, there was something signed that in a hundred years, it's the island is going to be given back to them. And the hundred years is coming up. So many people who have summer homes and stuff on the island are giving them up. 
are preparing to give them up. So it won't be there for much longer. Hmm. And I don't really have to encourage anybody to come study with me. I have tons of students. And I'm phasing out. If you want to study with me, you better grab it when you can. That's all I could say. Get on the boat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, this person that I'm trying to convince, she's my wife. Oh. (laughs) That's Karina. Uh And last night, it's kind of funny, maybe not funny, but we were both laying in bed, and I was reading this book, Three Simple Lines, And she was reading The Great Spring. So we were simultaneously. And she said something I thought you would probably appreciate. She said, she always gives you the feeling that you're doing something good for yourself when you're reading her. Oh, that is so sweet. That's so sweet. Come on out to Madeline Island. There aren't many opportunities to study with me anymore. I think they're going to get smaller and smaller. I'm getting older, and I want a little space. Mm -hmm. But, you know, come if you can. But, of course, it's a little scary because of COVID, and we didn't know if we were going to have it or not. But it's a very big place, and even the teaching room is huge, and we'll be separate, you know, separate from each other. And I think I've reduced the amount of people, so there's not going to be a lot of people. And... They're going to make the meals, you know, in a tent and stuff. And we're hoping everyone who comes has the two shots. Right. Does your wife have the two shots? She does not. Uh Uh-huh. I think it would be a good idea if she did, could get them. Yeah. She's still pretty young, so I don't know how that would, I don't know where she is in that. Oh, (laughs) okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, in New Mexico... People are getting it, you know, or driving to Texas to get the shots. Evidently in Texas, hmm. they don't have enough people and they have a lot of shots. So I, I don't know what to say, but I would personally be nervous. Right. Not for me, I have the shots, but for her. Right, right. It'd be nice if she got the shots and also to sh- travel right. all the way to Madeline Island. You know, without them is a little scary. Right. I'm driving. I. I don't even take a plane yet. That'd be a good long drive. (laughs) Yeah. As a writer, how do you feel about email? Well, I think that if there was an email, I'd at least have two more books out. (laughs) I spend a lot of time on email. Sometimes I love it. And I write too much on email. I should just learn one sentence answers. But sometimes I write these long things and really respond. And it takes up a lot of time. What I basically said 10 years ago, someone at a talk I was giving raised their hand and asked, what do you think about ebooks and all of that? <laughs> and I said to him, if they only waited 20 years, I would be dead and they could do whatever they want. <laughs> hmm. So I was not, I'm, I have not, I've been adjusting, but I'm not crazy about it. Right. Do you think there are any misconceptions about you? Oh, yeah. Everybody projects whatever they want about on me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what they are, but I know people. (laughs) I'm just amazed what they project on me. Hmm. Either wonderful things or bad things. It doesn't have to do a lot with me. 
you know, like poems I wrote almost 35 years ago. Right. One of the things that kills me, sometimes people come up to me and say how much they love writing down the poems and they read it every year. And not to be not grateful, but, you know, I've written other books. Could you please read some of my other books? <laughs> and also some of them I think are a lot better than Bones. Yeah. Like this new book, Three Simple Lines. I think it's one of my best books. I have to say I'm very proud of it. And actually my longtime students have said that. So it's not just me saying it. Is there anything you want somebody to get from the experience of reading this book, Three Simple Lines? Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. The last time that we talked, I remember at the end, it was just at the very end of summer where it was starting to get cool. And it's another thing that I've I've not forgotten. And you, I said, what would you say to anybody out there who's listening? And you said, stop for a moment. Get a popsicle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so lively back then. <laughs> and so kind of in closing here, here we are. We're we're going into spring in a day. We're we're yet again we're meeting at the changing of a season. Oh, you're right. Tomorrow Oh my God, I'm so glad you reminded me. Thank you. Okay. So what would you say in closing to anybody who is tuned in with us? Well, because of everything and, you know, what's going on, I'd say, hang in there, <laughs> hang in there. <laughs> hmm. I think that's what I'd say. And maybe also meet your life. Just be in there and meet your life. Meet your life. I like that. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, just one more question. Okay. Because of the fact that you and I are both real, real lovers of the work of Bob Dylan, and uh, Bob will be turning 80 in just a few weeks now. Well, no, in June, right? That's I think in May. Months. In May. Yeah. No, oh, well, maybe it's so, yeah, May, yeah. About yeah. eight weeks or so. Yeah. Okay. If you could ask Bob anything, what would you ask him? Oh, you know... I wouldn't ask him anything because he's so, I mean, I just leave him alone. I don't know if you know, I did a, a film with the filmmaker Mary Fight about Hibbing, Minnesota and his childhood. Right. And, and I just say, leave him alone. Just let him be. You know, he's been at it for so long. Just leave him alone. He's given everything. We've gotten everything from him. I love him forever. He doesn't have to tell me anything. <laughs> well put. Well, everybody can visit NatalieGoldberg.com and please pick up this book, Three Simple Lines. Yes, please. It's, it's great. And I thank you again. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you. This was a one this was a wonderful interview. Thank you. You're great. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. You're great. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Have a wonderful Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bapa tuli pipapadira. Di pampiri bura pati kanasa jip 
Goodbye.